Welcome to the Gaimia Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. We're so glad you're listening to the pod and trust that this message encourages your heart and faith today. At GBC, we're all about partnering with God in the renewal and restoration of all things. And it's our hope that through these sermons, you'll discover the life-changing power of Jesus. If you'd like to join us in person or online or find out more, check out our website at guymerebaptist.org.au. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your hearts to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in your prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate uh, the reading. Uh, the, uh, The reading of these epistles probably would have been done something like that in the original context. Uh, Most people in the ancient world couldn't read, and so someone would have read it out, and someone who knew the author's intention and heart would have read it out, and so there would have been some vim and vigor to the reading so that people really understood what was taking place. So thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. Hope you all feel like you're in Corinth now. Maybe not. Just before we look at this passage, I would like to say something very briefly about something I wrote about in uh, the E! News on Friday and that Lincoln prayed about. That is the referendum that's coming up next weekend. It is a really important moment, uh, and I would echo... Lincoln's prayer that however you choose to vote in that referendum, that you do not do so out of fear. I remember that the outcome of this is not just about the Constitution. It's actually about better outcomes for our Indigenous brothers and sisters and the ongoing work of reconciliation. Regardless of whether one votes yes or no next weekend, that is still the outcome. A yes or no vote doesn't actually do much because there's still so much more work to be done. Uh, in the E! News, I made a, had a link to a couple of helpful resources, particularly for those of you 
who may not yet be decided about how you are going to vote, uh, either because you just haven't been able to decide or because you haven't actually taken enough time yet to, to work that out. One of them is a resource by Morlean College, which was put out in consultation with their Indigenous Advisory Group, uh, which outlines some really helpful resources and some uh, various opinions that they have on that uh, on the vote and the referendum coming up. And the other is a link to the sermon that I preached on in January on the topic of the voice. So if you go to Linktree, both of those resources Resources are there. If that's helpful for you, by all means, please uh, take advantage of that and prayerfully consider uh, the ongoing work of reconciliation that God is calling us to and the role that this vote has for us. We're in 2 Corinthians. Uh, we are continuing to have a look at uh, Paul's interaction with the church in Corinth. And the passage that Sam read for us is a part of a smaller section that we're going to be looking at. It's actually we're going to be looking at kind of all of chapter 8 and all of chapter 9, although without looking at it in great detail because it's quite a large section. Um, but before we dive into that, I do want to give you just a little bit of a review and just a little bit of context. Um, Paul has written this letter to the church at Corinth in the immediate aftermath of having heard the good news from Titus. Uh, Titus is his right-hand man, an ambassador of his that he has sent to the Corinthian church in order to try to broker a bit of a reconciliation because Paul's relationship with the church at Corinth is tenuous at best. Uh, it is at the kind of the very brink of dissolving. Uh, which has given uh, Paul a great deal of grief as the man who had, uh, it was partly responsible for bringing the gospel uh, to the church at Corinth, partly responsible for founding uh, the church at Corinth. This was a bit of a disaster. He was really keen to effect a reconciliation. And Titus has brought him good news that there is the beginning of a little bit of reconciliation, a tenuous reconciliation, but the start of one. And what has delighted Paul the most is actually Titus's report that there's been a real spirit of repentance in the Corinthians. Not because that means that Paul can say that he was right and they were wrong, that he can kind of wag a finger at them and say, I told you so. It's not just that he feels good about himself, but what is so encouraging for him is that they have demonstrated their heart being open to God. And therefore, if their heart is open to God, then their heart will also be open to Paul, who is God's messenger. And this is actually a really important distinction, Paul's concern to point them to the Lord rather than just to him. He's not trying to get them to listen to him as much as he's getting them to listen to the Lord and what the Lord has to say through him. Our title for this series is With Clear Hearts, trying to pick up this theme that Paul is seeking to um, demonstrate in all sorts of ways the clarity of his heart, the transparency of his motivations trying to convince the Corinthian church that he's not trying to manipulate them, that he's not trying to hide things from them, that he's not holding back anything from them, but is fully invested in their relationship and maturity in relationship to God. That's his most important focus. So the passage that we looked at last week demonstrates that. Which does make it a little bit surprising that if Paul is so concerned to demonstrate the transparency of his motivations, that the thing that he would turn to next is an extended discussion on an area where integrity and motivations are so often questioned. Money. Isn't that striking? 
I want you to know that my, my, uh, my motivations are transparent, so let's talk about your giving. Wow, okay, we're going there. And he goes there, doesn't he? Two chapters on finances and generosity and giving and how they ought to give and why they ought to give. And yet, what we find in chapters 8 and 9 is the same emphasis. Paul is demonstrating to them again that his primary concern is actually their relationship with God. Just as when he heard that there was some reconciliation begun between them and himself, his delight was what it said about their relationship with God. So when he talks about finances, he is not so much interested in the amount of money that they give, the size of the collection, or how it gets administered. He is far more interested in their relationship with God. And I want to kind of demonstrate for you how he does that in this passage. Um, but before we do, let me just talk briefly about the collection that Paul was referring to, or rather, that the headings in your Bible refer to. Uh, Paul doesn't speak about the collection. He does speak about an offering. He does speak about a gift of grace, but he doesn't talk about the collection. The headings remind us that this is the case. What seems to be happening here is um, uh, another example of what happens in Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 30, we have an account of the church in Antioch. The church in Antioch was the first Gentile church. It was a church made up of Christians who were not primarily Jews. Uh, and it was a flourishing community of faith. In fact, it was the first place in which the believers were called Christians, people who followed after Christ. And they hear through a prophet of a famine that is going to be taking place in Judea to the south. And they determine amongst themselves that they are going to take up a collection and send it to Jerusalem through Paul and Barnabas. And so they collect this financial gift. They give it to Paul and Barnabas who take it down to Jerusalem. And this gift would have done two things. First of all, it would have made a really big financial difference in the lives of the Jerusalem believers. They were already experiencing oppression and opposition and persecution that probably had a bit of an economic impact to it. Uh, and when uh, you're already having tr trouble making ends meet, when the crops fail and prices go up, it gets even harder. So financially, that gift would have been wonderful for the believers to be able to afford food and the things that they needed for life. But more importantly, it also demonstrated the unity of the church. One of Paul's passions, and you see it all the way through his writings, is trying to remind and encourage and convince people that the Jewish believers in Christ and the Gentile believers in Christ were one in Christ. There's no distinction between them. And what better way to demonstrate the unity of the body of Christ by having the Gentile believers give a financial gift to the Jewish believers? So Paul has both of these things in mind in Acts chapter 11, and it appears that there was another time of need for the believers in Judea. And so Paul has taken to the churches in the Roman provinces of Macedonia and Achaia and basically asked them, would you consider giving to the Jews in, to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, to which they have responded with great joy and diligence. That's what Paul is referring to here. 
He refers to it in 1 Corinthians. He refers to this uh, gathering, this collection in Romans chapter 15. It's a pretty big deal in his ministry. And Paul turns to this. Because apparently the Corinthians, when they first had the news, said, yes, we're going to get on board. And then as their relationship with Paul began to splinter, suddenly the collection kind of came into question. And Paul here urges them to, well, finish the work. And Paul does so. Um, in ways that are pretty typical of the time. Uh, so, for instance, in chapter 8, if you take the time to read this through, you'll find three occurrences in verses 7, 8, and 9 of the word that's translated into English as eagerness. And that was a term that was often used in relationship to patrons, encouraging patrons who were seeking to uh, support and care for people in their community to do so eagerly. So Paul picks up some of that patronage language. He also uses some honor and shame language. Uh, Greco-Roman culture was very honor-shame based, and Paul kind of pulls out uh, or pulls on some of those honor and shame strings at one point in chapter 9, basically saying, listen, I've been bragging about you a lot, uh, telling everybody about how generous you're going to be, so if they show up and you're not as generous as I said you're going to be, we're both going to look bad, and nobody wants that. Right? You don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to be embarrassed for you, so you know. Right? So working the, like, kind of the language uh, that, he, uh, that, uh, that would have been common for them. And he also addresses the question, shall we say, of financial transparency. Uh, at the end of chapter 8, he actually refers to the people who will be dealing with it, administering the funds. It's not Paul. It's Titus, who the Corinthians know and trust, and two other unnamed believers who the church also knows and trusts. Paul kind of distances himself from the actual handling of the finances, uh, again, to demonstrate his integrity, the clarity of his heart, the transparency uh, of his intentions and motivations for them. But what's most striking, I think, about this passage is not the ways in which Paul utilizes honor and shame language or the language of patronage and eagerness or even the principles that he puts in place about some financial transparency but how he focuses the Corinthians on their relationship with God. And to demonstrate this for you, I'd actually like to kind of pause at just three points in this overall text. There are two places where Paul quotes the Old Testament, and there's one place where he alludes to a really significant passage in the New Testament. And those are the three places that I want to stop as we have a look through this text. So the first place, if you want to have a look, if you've got your Bibles with you, is in chapter 8. Starting in verse 8, Paul says to the Corinthians, I'm not commanding you to give or commanding you what to give, but I want, you, I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And that little phrase, that little sentence about Jesus, right? That Jesus, though he was rich for your sake, became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich, sounds very, very similar to what Paul has to say in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul quotes what scholars debate is whether his own kind of hymn that he has written or a hymn that was familiar to the Philippians and to Paul, where he says this, in verse 5 of chapter 2, Philippians, In your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. 
Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And in this text, Paul reflects, of course, on what Jesus has given up and for whom, and urges the believers in Philippi to live the same kind of way. It's interesting to me that he applies the theology of the incarnation in which God becomes man. He applies that theology to your relationships and, in Corinthians, to your giving. The theology has impact and implications in those very concrete, down-to-earth places, right? It's right in the, kind of the, in the nitty-gritty of life together that the importance of what Jesus did comes to bear. But there's something I think quite striking about Paul's reference to Jesus in 2 Corinthians 8. On the one hand, of course, it encourages us to be generous like Jesus was, which is a little bit of a high bar, wouldn't you say, right? But it encourages us to think, okay, well, if Jesus has given up everything for us, then we should probably think about giving up something for others, right? There should be some sort of analogy in parallel. But I think there's actually something more going on in this reference. Because in, second, uh, sorry, in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, you're probably familiar with the end, right? So the opening is, be like Jesus, who did not consider all that he had to be used for his own advantage, but made himself nothing, became obedient unto death. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, right? You're familiar with that part, Right? In an honor and shame culture, in an honor and shame culture, one of the reasons why I gave was to gain honor. It was a calculated decision that I would support you and then I knew that you would honor me in public. And so if I could find the right person, if I could find the promising project, if I could find something significant and I was able to contribute to that, I would gain honor. Yes. And in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, the giving of honor is only by God. Jesus did not calculate how much honor he could achieve if he were to become human and give himself for the sins of the world. His motivation was not to try to become the greatest. Jesus did not calculate and work out the risks and say to himself, you know what, I think I could have the name that is above all names if I were just to do this. Jesus gave all that he had out of obedience to the Father's will. That's it. Paul makes a reference here to what Jesus has done. And yes, there should probably be some sort of encouragement of what Christ's generosity has done for us to lead to our generosity. But to an honor and shame culture, Paul is saying something perhaps more significant. That this, your gift, is an act of obedience. That's all. The Lord will honor. You might remember what Jesus has to say about giving. When you give, don't let anybody know. Don't let anybody know. In an honor and shame culture, (laughs) that was the whole point. I mean, I don't get anything out of this deal if I don't tell people that I gave. 
I mean, you, you got to get the pluck, right? It says, look what I did. That, that's me. I'm a great guy. Jesus says, don't tell anybody. In fact, don't even tell yourself. Don't let your one hand know what the other hand is doing. If this hand gets asked what that hand is doing, this hand's going to say, I don't know, it beats me. And then what does he say? And then your Father in heaven, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Paul here is encouraging them not just to test the sincerity of their love for the Judeans, but also to demonstrate their love and obedience to God. Because that's what is most important as far as Paul is concerned. The, the outcome, the outcome that Paul is after is not a massive collection. It's that they respond in obedience to God and then he's happy. Move forward. If you have a look in chapter 9, uh, a little bit uh, later in chapter 8, sorry. In verse 13, he says, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. A passage that, if you have a look in your footnotes, will tell you it was from Exodus chapter 16. And Exodus chapter 16 tells us of the beginning of God's production of manna. His provision of manna. You might remember the story. What? The dew would come, and when the dew lifted, there was flakes of bread where the dew had been. And the people of Israel were to go out, and they were to gather it. But very importantly, they were only to gather enough for one day. The only exception was on Sabbath. There was no manna on Sabbath, so on the Friday you could collect double. But every other day, just your Daily bread. And that action, day in and day out of gathering just enough, does indeed have an element of equality to it, right? You can't hoard it. It'll go bad. I really can only collect what I need. Even if I'm really powerful, even if I'm really influential, even if I'm super rich, it doesn't matter. I can still only eat so much manna in a day. And so can you. So there is an element of equality, but again, perhaps more importantly, there is a really important principle of God's provision. Day in and day out, and 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 day in and day out. You can see why the Israelites began to complain about it. And day in and day out for 40 years. What is Paul urging them to remember? Not just the principle of equality, but that, that equality comes from the provision of God himself. He wants to turn their hearts to what God has provided to them in order that they might then also, in their present circumstance, share amongst themselves what God has provided, not just for them, but for all. And the final section is actually in, in the passage that was read for us. If you have a look in verse 8, Paul picks up this theme of, um, of provision. He says, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work as it is written. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. 
And that's a reference to Psalm 112. And Psalm 112 is a pretty remarkable psalm. It begins with praise the Lord, but then it moves into a beatitude, a blessed are the. And in this context, it's the blessed are those who fear the Lord. And it talks about the blessings that come on those who fear the Lord. They are secure and they don't fear and their children do well and they've got plenty. But the action, the action that is emphasized throughout is actually their generosity. It talks about the fact that they are gracious and compassionate and righteous in verse 4. It says that they will be generous and lend freely and conduct their affairs with justice. The passage that Paul quotes is that they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor and their righteousness endures forever. Because this is a blessed, blessed are those, and it's about those who fear the Lord, this is an encouragement ultimately to be wise. Because the wise fear the Lord. They recognize the way in which God has made the world and they live accordingly. And what this psalm reminds us is that one of the ways that God has made the world is that generosity pays. Generosity is the way in which God has made the world. If you think you will receive blessing by holding on, this psalm reminds us that's not how God made the world. God made the world. This is how he created the moral order that we might live generously. And in generosity, there is life. In generosity, there is security. In generosity, there is a decrease of fear. Not what our world tells us, is it? How do we increase our security? Hoard and hoard and hoard. How do we decrease our fearfulness? We hoard and hoard and hoard. We have to be ready for all the things that might happen. This reminds us that while there may indeed be some wisdom in how we steward our finances, that ultimately if we have not built some generosity into our system, we're not living wisely. So Paul once again encourages the Corinthians to consider their relationship with God, to consider the world that God has made and what they know about how God has made the world and live accordingly. This is Paul's primary focus, his most important motivation. This is what he wants to make most clear. And when you begin to see how important the Corinthian relationship with God is to Paul, it begins to make sense of some of the things that are missing from this passage. Did you notice them? It's hard to notice things that aren't there. But he doesn't give them percentages. He doesn't give them a target. It sounds like he doesn't care too much how much money is raised at all. As long as it stems from their obedience to the Lord, their trust in his provision, and a recognition that generosity is how God has made the world. And as long as they respond in obedience, as long as they respond with trust, as long as they respond seeking to live wisely, Paul is absolutely and utterly satisfied. Titus will collect the money and we'll administer it. We want to do that in as above board way as we can. But ultimately, you should decide in your heart what obedience and trust and generosity looks like and give. This is, not, this is not an appeal for finances. This is an invitation into grace. Did you hear how the passage ends? 
Sam had read it for us. In their prayers for you, in the Judean prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Did you hear that? They are not going to give thanks because of the gift. They're not going to give thanks because they can now afford bread. They're going to give thanks because of the grace that God has given you. Wow. This is an invitation not to ask, what will I give and to whom? It is an invitation to turn to God and ask, would you pour out your grace in my life in order that I might be obedient and trusting, that I might be generous? Have a look at how this whole section opens. Because Paul talks about the grace at the end, but he talks about the grace at the beginning. Chapter 8, verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people and they exceeded our expectations. How? They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. Did you hear that? First of all, he doesn't talk about money at all. This is a service. This is a, 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 a grace of God. And it comes in the midst of severe trial and of extreme poverty. This is the model that Paul wants to present of people who had turned their hearts first to God and then also to Paul as, Paul, as the apostle of God. I mentioned this story in our evening service a couple of weeks ago and realized that we haven't told it for a long time here. I'm not even sure how long ago it happened. It might be, might be close to 20 years ago now. There was a young woman who was a part of our church. She uh, was part of an external prayer ministry that wasn't related to anything that we did. It was just something that she was involved in. And uh, she had an opportunity to spend some time in South Africa working with the church in prayer ministry for those who were experiencing, well, just extraordinary poverty. They were ministering daily to people who were basically standing outside of factories in the hope that they might be given a day's work. She spent a period of time there, a week or whatever it was, and at the end of the week or time that she was there, there was a church service, and the pastor brought her up to the front and then just kind of said that you know, she's going to be returning home. Uh, and then he told the congregation that uh, her church has sent her to bless us. And so we are now going to bless them. And she was horrified because of what he was asking was for money. She was horrified. These people had nothing. But what can you do? Now we had sent her in the sense that she had left and gone to South Africa. We hadn't commissioned her. We hadn't paid for part of her flight. She was a member of our community who was involved in an external ministry who had embarked on this opportunity overseas, and that was about as much. This ragtag group of people pulled together a gift, 
which she dutifully brought home. I can't remember the exact figure when it was all exchanged, but it wasn't more than $50. An absolute drop in the bucket. But I don't believe we have ever received a more generous gift. Ever. In the midst of sphere trial, their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Before, and they exceeded our expectations because they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. Paul's concern for the Corinthians is God's concern for us. That we turn ourselves first to the Lord, give ourselves to the Lord, and then out of that, allow the grace of God to well up in rich generosity in all ways, shapes, and forms. That we might be those who are obedient to the will of God who place our trust in him and choose to live wisely. And in the end, while it might have seemed strange that Paul would go immediately to an area where motivation is so often questioned, I think in this sense it makes perfect sense for Paul to turn to the area that most clearly demonstrates that his concern is not for their money. It's actually for their relationship with God, obedience and trust generosity and wisdom. The same thing that is left for us to consider. So let me take a moment to pray for us to that end. I'll invite the team up. They're going to conclude our service in worship. Would you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, I pray that the work that you did in the Corinthians' hearts that you would do in ours. The work that you did in the believers in Macedonia, who aren't even named. We don't even know where those churches are. We don't know the extent of their gift, but we pray that what you did in their lives would be true in our lives, that you would extend to us grace. And then as we reflect on your grace, as we open our hearts to you first, that we might be obedient to your calling, that we might trust in your provision, and that we might live wisely in your world, and that all of that would well up in rich generosity to those who are in need here and around the world, that we might be those who for a while, out of the excess that we have, might supply the needs of those around us in order that their excess might supply our needs, and that together we might rejoice and give praise to you, the God who provides all things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast. We hope you found inspiration and encouragement and God used this message to speak to you. If you want to connect more with GBC, you can follow us on social media or contact us via our website. You can also get to know some of the people from our church community through the We Are The Church podcast. Real stories of real people sharing how Jesus has shaped and transformed their life. We pray you experience the transforming power of Jesus in your life and pray that God blesses you today. Yeah.